Tonight we're again in a commandment where I don't think you need to turn to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 because I think we could all manage to remember this one. You shall not commit adultery. I don't think we need to turn to it. Easy to remember. You shall not commit adultery. But do remember, as we've gone through the commandments, we found that each one is representing a big area of life. And each statement, although short, is is representing a big area of the Bible's teaching. And this statement, you shall not commit adultery, is representing, in summary form, all of the Bible's teaching on protecting marriage and keeping sexual activity inside God's boundaries. Now, sex and marriage, I'm sure there is no need to convince you that that's a relevant topic. I don't need to work at that, do I? We know it from our society, we're completely bombarded by a culture full of sex and by marriage breakup, but we also know it from inside ourselves. Most of us struggle with sexual sin in some way. Well, I presume I can say that. I haven't done a survey, but I'm pretty confident I could say most of us struggle with sexual sin in some way. So I don't think I need to persuade you it's relevant. I may need to persuade you it's appropriate to talk about at church. I might need to persuade you on that one. I'll try. Part of our worship is listening to what God says and it's shaping us. That's an act of worship. It's saying God is worth listening to and obeying. And so in in the Old Testament, Israel gathered, that included the children, by the way, to worship by listening to the law being told them. And if you think about it, that law included saying some pretty blunt, clear things about sexual activity. And then in the New Testament, churches gathered to worship, including the children. Take, for example, the church in Ephesus. They gathered to hear Paul's letter being told them. A letter that addressed children, but a letter that also told them direct warnings about sexual immorality and instruction about marriage. So it's relevant and it's appropriate as part of our worship. I know it can be talked about inappropriately, and I've got to be careful there, and please forgive me if I, you know, we're all going to have different ideas about where, what the boundary between appropriate and inappropriate lies. I've got to be clear, but try not to be inappropriate. And it's also, I hope you recognise a massive subject. I'm only going to do a tiny start at it this evening. Um, I'll, I'll see what Seth thinks of carrying it on next Sunday evening. So please bear that in mind and bear this in mind. It does involve touching on some sensitive subjects that I will touch on but not be able to address properly. So please bear in mind I'm very limited in what I can do this evening. And my aim this evening is mainly this, to persuade you what God has to say in this area is good. God has good reason to say you shall not commit adultery. It's out of his goodness he places boundaries around this whole area. And I want to persuade you of that because we're in a society that says Christian sexual ethics are bad. They are restrictive and annoying and in fact even damaging. And that is likely to affect us, that attitude. 
And it may make us defensive or a little embarrassed in this area. And we have no need to be. We've got something much better than the world has. I'm also doing it because seeing why God gives these boundaries should help us have a positive attitude to keeping the boundaries. And so that gives us two parts to this evening. Why does God place boundaries? And then how in practice do we respect those boundaries? We will have spent quite a lot of time on the first one, and I don't know what will happen quite in the second one. I'm hoping to get to say something about it without rushing too much, but we'll see how it goes. I am, I must admit, expecting to take longer than usual this evening. Uh, If you all look like you're falling asleep, I will take the hint. So, two parts, and the first one is, is quite long. Why does God place boundaries on sex? Why does he put these restrictions there? Now, here's an illustration. Jane's aunt buys her a book for her birthday. It's a beautiful, expensive book of black and white art. But Jane misunderstands. Maybe she's quite young. She thinks it's one of those magic painting books. Did you ever have a magic painting book? And you paint over it with water and the colours come out. So she gets her mug of water, she gets her paintbrush, and soon the book is soaked and it's spoiled. Oh, that's a pity. Because it was a good, expensive gift. And she didn't recognise what the gift was for and spoilt it. God's boundaries on sex are not because he's a nasty spoil sport. It's because he's given a good gift and he doesn't want it spoiled. So unlike Jane, we better understand what it's for. And unlike with Jane, God makes clear what it's for. Why did he give this gift? Well, the givers told us. And I want to go through now four things he's given the gift for. And some of this is going to come up on the screen. Four reasons why God gave this gift of sex. Here's the first one, which I think will come up behind me, for having children. Why did God give sex? First reason, for having children. Now, this is this is really significant, and we can easily miss this. What is the first thing God ever said to humans? That's worth thinking about. What's the first command that God ever gave to humans? It wasn't don't eat of the tree. It was do something. And you can have a look in Genesis 1 verse 28 to see it. The first command given to humans, the first word God ever spoke to humans was not a negative don't. It was a positive do. Genesis 1 verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it, which effectively is saying, have sex and produce children. God's first command. Notice how it's linked with the image of God in verse 27. It's linked to it. It's it's do this so the world can be filled with the image of God. It's good for God's world to be filled with the image of God. And do it. So that God's rule can be implemented across the world. It's linked there in verse 28. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it because you're the image of God to represent my rule. So let's have more images around the world representing my rule and implementing my rule. Have sex and produce children. Now, I've made 
blunt statement, and straight away there may be problems cropping up, popping up in your mind. Um, I'll, I'll mention two. The first one is this. What about sex that doesn't result in children? I'm here treading towards a very sensitive area. Genesis 3 onwards, this area has been fraught with difficulties and we're told to expect that. Well, there's a lot to say that I'm not going to say. Just, I'm just going to say this. Think of it this way. And I'm sorry if this is too simplistic, but well, I don't think it is. It's part of the answer. There's more to be said, but this is part. You buy a packet of seeds and they're designed to grow plants. But you know, don't you, that they don't all germinate. They don't all. It doesn't always work that way. But that doesn't mean be careless about it and plant them in cement powder. You don't say it doesn't always work, let's not bother. You still follow the maker's instructions, even though you know it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always result in reproduction. But still follow the maker's instructions. Here's another thing that might pop up in your mind. What does that mean about contraception? Well, I'm going to follow the line in police interviews. You know what they often say? No comment. <laughs> Not because it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a big and important area, but just because we haven't got time this evening to cover everything. But I do think we've lost the Bible's positivity about having children. We are far less positive than the Bible is about having children. We give far lower value than the Bible does to devoting time to being a father or a mother. We give far higher value than the Bible does to career and ambition and money and my freedom. There's something for you to think about. Why has God given this gift? First, for having children, but it's not just for that. Not just, that would be far too narrow a view. Here's a second reason he's given it, for oneness. He's given this gift for oneness. What is the Bible's most frequently repeated phrase about marriage? There is a phrase in the Old Testament that gets repeated in the New several times about marriage. And it's in Genesis 2, verse 24. If you have a look at Genesis 2, verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Marriage is two people becoming one flesh. That is the Bible's core description of, of the essence of marriage, one flesh. And sex at its best is, a, is an expression of that oneness and is given by God to bind together that oneness, two into one. A physical bond that creates an emotional bond. And, and it's a oneness created by bringing together two that are different. You will, I'm sure, recognise that that's something that needs to be said in our society. Maybe it could be taken for granted before a couple of decades ago, by bringing together two that are different. Let's have a think about this. Genesis 1 contains pairs of opposites. Can you think of any? I've asked some questions so far and they're not, 
not got you to answer, but this time let's, let's have you answer. Can you think of pairs of opposites in Genesis 1 brought together? Dark and, dark and light, yes. There it is in verse uh, 4. Dark and light are opposites, but they come together to give our rhythm of time across a day. Opposites that work together. What else? Sorry? Dry land and, and the seas, the land and the sea. They're sort of opposites, but they, get, they work together to give the whole environment. What else? Yes, light and dark, we've, we've, uh, as we've heard, Morris, thank you. And the others are not quite so obvious, because there is this funny one that we're not quite sure what it is. There's water above the expanse and water below the expanse. Um, um, well, I'm not quite sure what that is, but it does work together to give the water cycle. There's one in verse 1, two things together in verse 1 of the whole Bible. Heavens and the earth. Now, this is an interesting one because the word heavens is masculine and the word earth is feminine. The very first verse of the Bible has masculine and feminine brought together as one. That's interesting. And in each case, these these opposites, they work together as a pair and it's all leading towards the climax of creation. Male and female brought together as a pair. God's made the world to work this way, by complementary differences working together. Uh, By the way, in chapter 2, the emphasis is on the sameness of Adam and Eve. They're similar, they're suitable, but there is difference. So we've got to be careful how much we state this. The emphasis is on their similarity, but they are different. And that difference results in them being able to work together. Now, our society is trying to deny that, we all know that, but it doesn't stop it being true and what actually works. Here's an example. Daniel, can we have the next thing on the screen, which hopefully is a picture? There we go. Now, you probably know it is Pride Month, so-called. And a few years ago, when it was June and Pride Month, you know, you know how all the companies like to get on board with it and show they're virtuous and so on. And this was KLM, Royal Dutch Airlines, wanted to show their virtuous. And they had a slogan along with this picture that was something like, I can't remember exactly, it was something like, you know, we celebrate our customers whatever way they click or something like that, you see. But I wonder if the person designing it, it was either a bit brainless or maybe actually <laughs> didn't agree with the agenda, was having a joke. <laughs> because what's the problem? The top one, how you click? Well, you don't. It doesn't work, does it? The middle one, how you click? Well, it doesn't work. Which one works? It's only the one where two that are different and designed to go together work. And if you try the other two, the air hostess will tell you, oh, that was sexist, wasn't it? What do they call them now? The, the cabin crew person will tell you off because only the bottom one will work. Get your seatbelt done up that way. Our society tries to deny it, but the way God's made things is the way it works. Thanks, we can remove the picture. We have it here in Genesis 2, verse 24, this oneness. But Jesus quoted Genesis 2, 24, and it's worth having a look at that. Would you come with me to Matthew 19? Matthew 19. The start of Matthew 19. 
Jesus is asked about divorce. And he teaches that what God has joined together should not be separated. Because marriage is a oneness that should not be broken. But it's very interesting what he quotes when he does this. Let's read verse 4 to 6. Matthew 19, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now you might recognise that verse 5 is quoting Genesis 2 verse 24, one flesh. But why does Jesus first quote Genesis 1, God made them male and female? Why does he quote that first? It doesn't look necessary, does it? He can just quote the one flesh bit. But it is necessary because Jesus here is reinforcing that that one fleshness depends on two complementary halves that are different but meant to go together. Jesus is saying something here about the essence of marriage. The essence of marriage is it brings together two complementary halves designed by God to go together. Why is God given sex? For having children, but also for oneness. And then thirdly, here's a third reason he's given it. For self-giving. For self-giving. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Very important chapter on the whole subject. We could spend weeks on 1 Corinthians 7, but I'm going to be very brief here. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3 and 4. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's so much that's interesting here. Uh, Back, it, back when this was written, when they heard the wife's body doesn't belong to herself but only the husband, that would have been straightforward to them. I say, yes, of course, of course. But then Paul is completely radical and shocking to them and says, and the husband's body doesn't belong to himself either. It belongs to the wife. This is, this is a symmetrical thing. This is a mutual thing. It was radical teaching then and it still is today. It's saying sex at its best is giving yourself to your spouse. Your pleasure comes from giving him or her pleasure. And that should be part of giving your whole self. Because the Bible doesn't regard it as just a physical activity. It's a whole self act. It's giving yourself to a person you vowed to give your life to. And you do it safe in the knowledge they vowed to give themselves to you. Loads more we could say. It's interesting, um, a different spin on consent here in chapter 7. And it's interesting, the person who's against sex in chapter 7 is Satan. But we must move on. Um, why is God given sex? 
for having children, for oneness, for self-giving, and then the, the fourth one, to represent Christ and the church. To represent Christ and the church. Now, most Christians are familiar with Ephesians 5 saying, marriage is a reflection of Jesus and the church. It isn't Jesus is like a husband. No, it's the other way round. It's Jesus is the real husband. And others are partial pictures of him. You may be familiar also with the Song of Songs being this song that celebrates sexual love. And traditionally, down through church history, and I'm convinced rightly, it's been seen as a picture of Christ and the church. And if you think about the things we've just seen, the three reasons I've just gone through, they're pictures of salvation. Can you think how the reasons I've just given are pictures of salvation? Well, Jesus gives himself fully for us, his bride. We are made one with him. The, the gospel totally depends on union with Christ. And this relationship bears fruit. It produces the image of God. So all those things we've seen are pictures of salvation. Sex is given to represent Christ and the church. Amazing thoughts. Now, I've been trying there to go through the reasons God gives the gift, so we're not like Jane painting her book with water and getting the gift wrong and spoiling it. We need to know why it's given. But, but I'm also there trying to persuade you God is good, and he's given a good gift that has purposes. And for that reason, it's good of him to say, keep it inside my boundaries. And God's boundary is this. Sex is for marriage and marriage is for one man and one woman for life. That's the boundary. And the boundaries are necessary because, well, I hope it's obvious already, but I'll try to reinforce it with. I've got three P's. These could go up on the screen. Three P's. The first is because this gift is precious. It's precious. I used to have because my car insurance was in quite a state, to be honest. I used to have a £400 Ford Escort. It was a completely beat-up car. It didn't even have first gear. You couldn't get in first gear. Hill starts were interesting. Completely beat-up car, but I quite enjoyed having it because I didn't have to care about it much. I could treat it how I liked, and it didn't really matter because it wasn't precious. Then I got a Ford Probe. For those who don't know, a Ford Probe's a lovely car. To be honest, it's, a, it's an Essex Boys midlife crisis car. But I thought it was great. You may have seen that in the news they sent a probe to Mars, so I think it must be a brilliant car. At least that's what I used to tell my school pupils. Well, when I had that car, I took care of it. I took notice of the manual. I, I treated it how it was supposed to be treated because I know people laugh at Ford Probes, but to me it was precious. Well, sex is a precious gift from God, and so it's to be taken care of and used his way within his boundaries. God is for sex, but sex is for marriage. And marriage is for one man and one woman for life. It's precious, but it's also powerful. It's powerful. Our society says it's just a recreational activity. And... And so he's careless about it, but it's not just a recreational activity. And our society is so mixed up about this. Think of the Me Too movement about women being abused. And they didn't say, it's just a physical act. 
And you didn't get physically injured, so what's the fuss? No, they didn't say that. They rightly made a fuss. Because harm is done. Because it isn't just physical, it's powerful. Petrol is powerful. Petrol is powerful. Put it in a bowl and sniff it and you'll destroy your brain. Throw it on a lit hob in your kitchen and you'll destroy your house. Put it in the tank for your car. Oh, and that's good, isn't it? That's helpful. And sex also is designed to be used within marriage. Take it outside of that context. Oh, and it's powerful to damage. Inside that context, it can be powerful for good. It's precious, it's powerful. It's private yet public. Now, our society gets this completely the wrong way round. It is made so public. We are bombarded with it on the TV, on the internet, on the newspaper stands. It's it's made so public. And yet we're also told it's private. It's nobody else's business what what two consenting adults do. It's just private. But God says... Completely the opposite. He says, sex is intimate. Keep it private. We're even to be careful how we talk about it. Now, this makes me hesitant about this sermon, because we are to be careful how we talk about it. It is to be kept private. But it is everyone's business, because it's powerful, and God gave it for the good of society. But when it's misused, it uses, it causes destruction that is, it, it, oh, it works out to other people. Families are destroyed. Children are destroyed when marriages break up. Children are destroyed literally 200,000 every year in the womb in this country because of sin in this area. Emotions are destroyed. And when it's really misused, societies are destroyed. So the phrase, what consenting adults do in private is no one else's business, is is really naive. Because what goes on in the bedroom does not stay in the bedroom. It has effects elsewhere. Now, all of that was to try to persuade you God out of his goodness has given this law. He says, you shall not commit adultery and everything else it represents because those boundaries are for our good. So here's the second part, and it is much briefer. How can we respect those boundaries? This commandment is all about protecting the gift. Sex and marriage is the gift. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is shorthand for, you shall not do anything that damages the gift. Protect it. Now, as I said at the beginning, I've only got time to run briefly through some examples of things that damage the gift. We'll have to see. Uh, Seth and I will have to talk next week about what he does next week. What does the seventh commandment forbid because it damages the gift of sex and marriage? I just want to, I'm not going to quite just state, but I'm only going to briefly introduce a few areas as examples. First of all, adultery. The commandment forbids adultery because it damages the gift. Now that one's so obvious, maybe nothing needs to be said. It's so obvious, but actually something does need to be said because sadly so many, including in churches, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, have wrecked their lives and damaged their spouse and hurt their children and rocked the church through adultery. So adultery. 
But it's not just adultery, it's also sex outside marriage damages the gift. Every so often in the New Testament, you'll find this phrase, sexual immorality. Or if you've got an old translation, fornication. It represents a Greek word that meant any sexual activity outside of marriage. It's like petrol outside the car engine. Dangerous. It damages God's good gift. And I'm not going to say much more about how it damages God's good gift, because I'm, I'm hoping that's fairly obvious. But I will say this. As you hear that, don't be too narrow about what you mean by sex in that regard. You might wonder, what on earth am I talking about? I'm talking about this. Sometimes unmarried Christians, let's say a boyfriend and a girlfriend, but it might not be. They do things together and they say, it's fine because it's not sex. It's no big deal. I've got a clean conscience. Well, let's let's be careful. Would you think it was a big deal if the other person was doing it with someone else? Would you say it's no big deal then? Think about what that tells you about the status of that activity. Adultery, sex outside marriage. Here's a difficult one because it isn't just outside marriage. Misuse of sex inside marriage. I was at a church youth group once and I heard a leader say, no sex outside marriage, but it's no holds barred inside marriage. That is a really unfortunate phrase. And it's also very wrong. And it's also dangerous. In a world where people's idea of sex has been twisted by porn and Fifty Shades of Grey, people can have very wrong ideas of what is acceptable self-giving. Now, you will be relieved to know I have no intention of going through a list of what's fine and what's not fine. That would be very inappropriate. I'm, I'm just pointing out there is an important subject and the world is very different from the pre-internet age. And that makes a difference to this. Uh, by the way, this book, Closer, a realistic book about intimacy for Christian marriages by Adrian and Celia Reynolds has something to say on this. It says it cautiously because it's very difficult to be definite on this. But it is well worth getting a start at thinking about that if you're a married couple. Closer by Adrian and Celia Reynolds. How else can we damage God's gift? By lust. By lust. Maybe excuses is private. It's just all in your mind. It's not harming anyone else. But it doesn't take much thought to see that that is actually not true. A Christian I know was working on a building site. And whenever there was a break, his fellow builders would get out a pack of cards to play cards and expect him to be involved. And they had inappropriate pictures on the back. You can all guess the sort of thing I mean. And he said to those builders, don't use those cards while I'm around. I don't want my ability to enjoy my wife to be spoiled. Now, I was brought up amongst builders. I can imagine just how hilarious they thought that was. That really took guts to say it. But he was right. David's spiral down into such destructive sin started with looking at a woman washing. It isn't just all in the mind, it's destructive. 
And so also, here's another one. Dressing immodestly is against the seventh commandment. I saw not very long ago a Christian woman put on Facebook, how a woman dresses is none of a man's business. He shouldn't, he can't blame his lust on her. Well, you're half right, but very wrong. You're also totally unrealistic. Because Jesus said this, if you call someone else to sin, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. Now notice he said someone else to sin. They are sinning. If the way you dress causes someone to lust, they are sinning. He doesn't say they can blame it all on you. But he says, you prompting that sin means it would be better to be thrown in the sea with a millstone round your neck. Well, that is, that is, that is putting it seriously. Especially with summer having come on, we need to give that some serious thoughts. There's so many more that could be said. I'm sure you can see that I'm trying to skate through these and be introductory. I'll just give one more. Failure to nurture your marriage if you're married. It undermines God's good gift. And this commandment is all about protecting and valuing God's good gift. And so failure to nurture marriage can be a breaking of the seventh commandment. Put it this way. I don't know who did the flowers this week, but they're really nice, aren't they? What vibrant, beautiful colours. Beautiful. But if those are left there for the next two weeks in this sort of weather with no attention at all, what will they look like in a fortnight's time? Ugly, shriveled, dying, if not dead. We're not surprised, are we? Because you need to nurture them and care for them. But so many people have been really surprised that their marriage is shriveled, ugly and dying when they haven't done anything much to nurture it. They haven't worked at nurturing it. And do bear in mind that the book of Proverbs connects discontent, particularly with our own marriages, with sexual immorality. Nurture your marriage if you are married. Not doing so can be a breaking of the seventh commandment. Now, now, as I've said repeatedly, far more could be said, but I hope that's enough to persuade you. First of all, God is good. And out of his goodness, he's given us this commandment and he's given us these boundaries. And I hope it helps you with a positive attitude to try to implement this command and to take action to protect God's good gift. I hope it's been obvious that that's, that's the case for whether you're married or not. There's still a gift there that's worth protecting in yourself and in others and in your mind. Avoid anything that undermines his good gift.